We are going through the book of James. We're kind of getting to the end of our study of the book of James. And what I love about the book of James is James is a half-brother of Jesus, brother of Jesus. And he, um, he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he writes this letter to those who have been scattered through the Roman Empire, and, and some are going under persecution. Some aren't just living out. Some aren't living out their faith the way they should. And it's just such a practical book. You can read the book of James in one sitting, and you can read it over and over and over again and learn something new. And what James does is he just speaks to us about what it means to live an authentic Christian life. What does it What does it mean to live an authentic life before? Um, Christ. And so um, he gets into this part of his letter where he deals with something that I believe every single one of us deal with. So the next two weeks, I believe, are going to be so vital for each and every one of us. We're going to be talking about patience today when we're going through trials, which every single one of us are going to go through trials in our lives. And how do we, how do we deal with those trials with patience and not allow anxiety and worry and fret to overtake us? And next week, we're going to talk about prayer because I believe prayer is the pivotal thing. I believe prayer in your life is what's going to help you get through all the trials of your life. Um, Prayer is so foundational. So we're going to dig into prayer next week. Uh, James talks about that in his letter. But today, I want to look at what he talks about patience and how we can have patience and how we can endure and, and not become critical and cynical when we, don't things, when we don't see things going fast enough. And we don't see things working out the way we want them to work out, right? And that's the hard thing. Because for me, I'm like, the microwave doesn't work fast enough. Can they make a microwave that goes faster, right? And that's the way we live our lives. We, we want things to go faster. And it's in that waiting period that can be excruciating for some of us. So I want to dig into what... Uh, James talks about, so we're going to be in James chapter 5. you got your Bibles. Uh, you can turn with me there or look up at the screens. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 and speaking about patience, waiting for the Lord's return, and how we can wait patiently as we go through the trials in our life. So James says, he says, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. And then he uses just this illustration of a farmer. And he says, consider the farmer who waits patiently for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look to the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged for look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and sufferings, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And everybody said amen to God's word. Amen to God's word. So, Here's the thing I want us to look at today. How can we be patient in the uncertainty of life and guard our lives against impatience? And so the warning that James gives us here is not to become impatient while we're waiting. And every single one of us in this place at at one time or another has failed at the test of patience. 
And I think if we're going to look at one area in our life, it's that area of waiting on the Lord and allowing God to do what he needs to do in our heart as we're waiting. And as a child, um, I didn't handle Christmas time really well. And here's the reason why. Um, I blame it completely on my parents. And this is why. Okay. Just teasing. Um, what my parents would do is they would bring out the gifts like three to four weeks before Christmas time. And this was just, I know it. Good. I'm not the only one. This is brutal. I mean, come on. We would, we, us, now I bring out our gifts, you know, that night. We, we put them all around the tree. And, and so as a kid, this is brutal. And I remember, you know, the presents being out there. And then, of course, I'm looking. And so for a seven, eight-year-old kid, this is brutal. And I remember one year, there's this one present. And, and you know, I was like, man, what is it? And I kept picking at it. You know, I kept picking at the, at the wrapping paper to kind of look at it. And oh man, I just, I was just a terrible child, but I just irritated my parents and I kept picking at it, picking at it. Finally, my dad got so mad, he took it and he threw it out in the backyard. <laughs> and the only reason I know what it was, because when he threw it out in the backyard, it bounced. So I knew it was a Nerf football. So uh, that's how terrible I am. I was, I was just, so I went out and got the present, brought it, apologized to my dad and they rewrapped it and I got a Nerf football. Christmas morning wasn't really that exciting because um, I knew what I got, right? It, it's this patience. It's this, it's this waiting, right, that we're like, man, God, what are you doing? I mean, what, what are you showing me in this time while I'm waiting? And this is what James talks about. And, and he gives us, what's interesting, he gives us the results of, of impatience. He says, um, he says, listen, here's what's going to happen when you become impatient with one another. And, and what ends up happening is we end up grumbling, don't we? We end up saying things that we might not ought to say. And we begin to struggle within our relationships. And so James tells us that the results of impatience is actually complaining. There's this grumbling that we have towards one another, isn't it? We, we complain and we complain, you know, why isn't this going my way? Or why did this happen? And why doesn't this happen to other people? Why does this always happen to me? And complaining will always lead to a critical spirit. And so what James says, is, listen, guard yourself against this because what happens is when you become impatient, you become critical. And when, and, and, and when you become critical, it's going to, your spirit is going to be poisoned and you're going to start complaining. You're going to try to get other people in your camp. And so a critical spirit will hinder us from actually hearing from God and what God wants to say to us in that time of waiting. So when things don't go our way, it's easy for us to fall prey to complaining, which, which in return actually poisons our spirit. And the apostle Paul actually gives us some excellent insight and to how we can handle um, the temptation of wanting to complain or gripe when we don't see things going uh, quick enough. And if anyone had reason to be critical or to complain, it would have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was once, you know, stoned, shipwrecked three times, beaten with rods three times. He faced robbers, often went without food, all for the sake of Christ. And here's what Paul, Paul has this different perspective. And this is what he says. He said, listen, if I'm going to boast, he goes, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. I'm not going to, uh, complaining is going to do nothing. And I love what he says in Corinthians here, 2 Corinthians 11, 30. He says, if I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how 
weak I am. Because he understood that God was using those things in his life to keep him humble before him, to keep him dependent on him. And so Paul gets this. And Paul, writing his letter to the Philippian church, he says this to the church to guard their hearts against this complaining spirit that can overtake all of us when we're waiting or when things aren't going fast enough for us. He, he says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, do everything without what? Complaining and arguing. Notice all those two things go together. Isn't that interesting? Because if we're complaining, we're arguing. And when, and when that grips our spirit, it really hinders our relationships. And how many you know, don't you just love being around people that complain all the time? Isn't that fun, right? It's, I, 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 it's joy suckers, right? They just suck the joy out of every situation. And, and you may see something good, but then they see something bad. And it's just like, oh, you know, it's, you know, I call them joy suckers. But he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. So so that no one can criticize you. He says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. He says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even as I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God Just like your faithful service is an offering to God, and I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. Here's the difference of Paul's attitude, what changed his attitude about even going through the difficult circumstances in his life. When impatience wanes, listen to me, when impatience wanes, it wanes when, we, when our vision is clear. So listen, impatience loses its effectiveness in our lives when we have a clear vision in our life. So if I understand what my vision is, if I understand what my purpose is, then, then it's going to impede impatience. It's not going to overtake me. A complaining spirit's not going to overtake me because I have a clear vision in my life. And Paul had a clear vision. Paul understood that life stinks at times, that life isn't always going to turn out the way we want it to. And so what Paul understood is it didn't change his relationship that he had with Christ. And so even in his hardships, he understood that God was working in his life and so that he could endure the hardships and remain faithful to God because he knew what was in store for him in his future. And that was Jesus. Jesus was his vision. If we don't have a clear vision of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, then we're going to allow the circumstances in this life to overtake us. And when they overtake us, what do we end up doing? We end up becoming critical. We end up complaining all the time. Paul had a clear vision. Impatience wanes when our vision is clear. And so Paul counted it as a privilege to serve Christ. And so his goal was to please Christ in all things, whether they were good or whether they were a struggle. He says, my aim is to please Christ because I know he's working his good in all circumstances. Somebody say, amen. That's good preaching right there. Amen. 
We need to get that into our spirits, people. I like what Tim Keller says here. He says, if grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it as long as we have him. Can I get an amen there? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There we go. (laughs) And so what Paul learned is, Paul learned that what is done for Christ is really the only thing that matters. So the question is this, Pastor Barden, how, how, do, how do I protect my heart from succumbing to a critical and complaining spirit? So we got to work at it, don't we? Because it doesn't come easy. Because there are things that are going to happen in our, in our everyday lives that are going to draw us to want to complain, or why didn't this go, or why am I in traffic, or blah, 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 blah. Why, why am I treated this way? They're, they're, listen, every single day we're going to have a challenge to protect our hearts. We have to be proactive in our pursuit of Christ so that this complaining spirit doesn't take over us and, and then obviously affect our relationships and so how do, how do we protect our hearts from succumbing to a critical and complaining spirit? Well, the word of God speaks to that. And, and I believe, uh, let me just give you a couple things here that I believe can really help us from not succumbing to this critical spirit and, and not allowing God to do his work in our hearts when you're waiting in line. Amen. God can speak to you at the DMV line. I know it seems impossible, but we serve a God of miracles, okay, people? First of all, don't compare your life with others. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm telling you, the moment, see, the moment something doesn't go right in our lives, what do we end up doing? We end up looking over our show. Well, how come it's not going to that? How come they're not going through? Why aren't they going through? Why am I going through? Why? why? We all do. Can I, right? We, We all do that. Paul says this. He says this to the Corinthians. He says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with someone who commends themselves. So he says, like, I'm not, I'm not going to compare myself with those who brag about themselves and how great they are. He goes, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not what? Wise. Don't compare yourselves with others. In fact, I was, I was listening to a Yale professor and um, a behavioral scientist They did some research on those that won Olympic medals. They came in first, second, or third, bronze, silver, or gold. And you would think, you know, if you won a medal at the Olympics, you'd be pretty happy, right? You'd be the top of your event, top three of your event. And they did some research. And what they they found is, was really interesting, is that those that won silver medals were more likely to be unhappy than those who won bronze medals. What in the world? Wait a minute. You got second. You got the silver. Silver is better than bronze. You think they would be happy. And what they found in their research was this. Those that won silver were unhappy for this reason, because they didn't win the gold. They said, what did I do wrong? What, what could I have done more? And so they weren't, they weren't happy. Now, the thing about those that won the bronze medal, they were looking at the people that came in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And they're like, I'm glad that I'm at least on the medal stand. 
Now I'm like, isn't that so true of our behavior? Right? They even did research. They, they did research on asking people, um, how much money, more money could you make in your salary to make you happy? Those that made 50 said 70. Those that said 70, that could make six figures. And what they told one group of people, they said, you're going to make $100,000. You're going to make six figures. So for those that made less, they're like, this is wonderful. Take your job. Here's your company. You're making six figures. So once they said you're going to make six figures, then they told them, but everybody else that you're working with all make $200,000. All of a sudden, guess what? They were unhappy. Why? What they found at the researchers was this. It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. It's interesting when you begin to compare your life with other people, you can either feel better because you can say, oh, look it, I'm doing a lot better than them. Or then you can look over here and say, my neighbor just got a new car. Well, I've got to get a new car because my neighbor got a new car. Then I need to get a new car, right? It's all about what? Perspective. What are we doing? We're comparing our lives with others. Here's what Paul says. Don't compare your lives with others because the moment you do that, it infects your spirit. It causes your spirit to become critical. And see, what God is saying to us is saying, listen, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. He goes, it doesn't matter what, whether I had plenty or not, I can do all things through Christ who gives me what? Strength. So Paul understood that no matter what, he didn't compare. What did he do? He kept putting his life, his perspective was Jesus, not other people. God, what are you doing in my life? How are you using my life? How are you using my resources, my time, talent, and treasure? Lord, am I giving those things to you? I'm not worried about what other people are giving. What are you telling me to give? And so Paul understood the heart of contentment was being content in Christ and what he was doing in, in, in Paul's life and Paul's life alone. And so we need to be careful here about our perspective. Is our perspective everything around us and is that what's making us happy or is our perspective Christ and what he's doing in our life? So no matter what he may take us through, we can be secure in Christ because we know he's doing a work in my life and I need to say, Jesus, what are you doing in my life? And how are you using me? And how am I using the things that you've given me to glorify you? It's all about perspective. So don't compare your life with others. Amen? Don't do it. It's not good. And we all do. And we all have to fight against that, myself included. The second thing we need to do is give thanks. Give thanks. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. <laughs> right? Count... Give thanks to the Lord. Here's what Paul says. He says, be thankful in some circumstances, for this is the will of God. Oh, thank you for correcting me, Ruth. Be thankful in what? All circumstances. You know what the word all means in the Greek language, the original language? It means all. That's what it means. It means all. It means every all circumstances, whether we feel they're good or we feel they're bad. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you, because you belong to who? There's your focus again. Who do you belong to? You belong to Jesus Christ. And so no matter what I'm going through, I'm saying, God, listen, I may not like this. It may not be fun, but God, I'm going to thank you because I know I'm ultimately yours and you work all things 
for your good, for those that have been called according to your purpose. Because the moment, listen, you know, the, the, I, I was watching the uh, World Gymnastic Championships from Stuttgart, Germany. I just, it amazes, Simone Biles just amazes me. I don't, I, amazes me how she can do 18 flips in the air and come back and then do it on the beam and everything. And what, what keeps a person on the beam? It's their focus. They're looking straight ahead. The minute you turn your head, guess what? You're going to fall off the beam. So Paul has it right. He's not turning his head to the left or the right. Jesus is his focus. The moment we look at other people, the moment we lose thankfulness is the moment we fall off the beam. Every single time. Think of your life. When, 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 you, begin criti- when you begin to criticize or you become, uh, you know, just complaining, where does thankfulness go? Out the window. You can't, listen, you can't be thankful and, and complain at the same time. Amen. They contradict each other. You can't do it. So that's why Paul says, listen, be thankful in all circumstances. This will guard your heart from a, from a poisonous spirit that criticizes all the time. This will guard your heart. Be thankful. Let Jesus be your focus. Don't, don't, don't focus on what everybody else is doing. What's God doing in your heart? Your Jesus needs to be your focal point. And the third thing there is be generous. Live a generous life. When you're giving of yourself, your time, your treasure, your talent to the Lord, it protects your spirit from saying, I need more, I need more, I need this or I need that. Be generous. Paul, once again, he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get what? A small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must also decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. A cheerful person is thankful for what the Lord has poured into their life. If you want to protect your heart from a critical spirit, don't compare, right? Give thanks and be generous. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Because those are three really good things that we need to constantly hear and that I need to constantly hear in our life. So what James does is as he continues in his letter here in, in, in chapter five, he gives us the, the, actually the purpose for patience. And so James, what he does here is he gives us three examples of people who have endured and what God did through their endurance and how they were patient in their endurance. And so James says, look at the farmer and look how patient the farmer has to be. How many know that crops don't grow overnight? Duh, right? They don't. You have to wait. What James is saying, he said, the farmers know that the early rains in the fall would soften the soil and then the spring rain would mature the crops. The farmer knows that the harvest will come. They know. They wait. You know, for us, we live in, you know, apple country. You know, we're in the fall now. Love apples and apple cider. Apple donuts. Cider donuts. Mm -hmm. Right? But, But the farmer knows. 
They wait patiently. They prune. They wait. And eventually the crop will come and they begin to harvest it. See, the, the farmer knows that he is not ultimately in control, right? They wait patiently. And aren't you thankful for farmers? I'm so thankful for farmers because they make food and I like food. So we thank farmers. See, they know that there's a work going on even though they don't necessarily see it. But they know that the harvest will come. So they wait patiently. And this is what I want you to understand, that God is still doing a work in your life even when you don't see it. Even when you don't see it. And it was interesting, God reiterated this point to me. I was reading a devotion from uh, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, and it just what he said in his devotion just reiterated what, what, we were, what, what we were sharing about today. There's this great illustration he used of a chess master. How many of you guys like to play chess? Well, if you've ever watched a chess match, it seems like they take forever to make their moves. You know, it's like watching paint dry. You're like, man, I'm glad I don't televise this. If you guys watch a televised chess match and you can sit through it, God bless you. But a lot of times they take this time in between uh, making their moves. And here's the reason why a master chess player understands that it's just not the first move they make, but actually they're thinking about the second, third, and fourth move that needs to be made. Tennis is the same way. If you're playing tennis, many times it's not the first shot you make. It's like, I'm going to make this shot because I know what the second one might, I might have to take. Do I have to come to the net? Am I going to pull the, the opponent out of position so I can hit the ball down the line? They're always, a good tennis player is always not thinking about that first shot, but he's thinking about the second and third shot that they may have to take. It's no different from a master chess player. And what's interesting is you may look and you may think, well, why did they make that, why did they make that play? Why did, the, why did the master chess person make that particular move? And we may not understand why they made that move, but they understood why they made that move because they know two, three, four moves down the line that that particular move that they made would set them up for victory, would set them up for a win. You see, it, 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 it's the story of Joseph you know, here Joseph, the story in the Old Testament, you know, he's given the beautiful coat of many colors and it's kind of, hey, brothers, look at my coat. What happens when you brag to your brothers? Wasn't fun, right? And so, so Joseph was bragging about his coat and his brothers sold him off into slavery. Now that wasn't good, right? And so Joseph, you think about his life and he was sold off into slavery. He worked for a man named Potiphar and Potiphar's wife made advances towards him, lied about him. Then he got thrown into jail and just like, he's, Joseph was living the dream at that point, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. It was when you think about his life circumstances, but he never lost his hope in God. And then eventually Joseph, because he interpreted dreams and then eventually he, 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 he worked uh, for the most powerful country in the world that time for Egypt and God used him 
And eventually his brothers would have to come back to him because there was a famine in the land. And, and Joseph had a dream and understood that they needed to, to begin to have provisions for seven years for this famine to come. And so because of, it, because of that, God placed him in this wonderful position within the country of Egypt. And his brothers had to come back. And, and, and you, you think Joseph, looking back over the back, the, 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 the part of his life where it seemed like he was completely treated unfairly, you think he would have a lot of bitterness and hatred towards his brothers and say, oh, good, now you're crawling back. Okay, I'm going to put you all into jail. I'm going to give, give you what's due to you. But what does Joseph say to his brothers? That's right. That's right, Ruth. Here, here's what he says in, in Genesis 52. It says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think sometimes when we look at our lives and, and we don't understand those steps, God does. And what we think, well, how is God going to work this out for his purposes and for his good? See, that's where the trust is. See, what Joseph did and what Joseph did correctly is through all those steps where he could have easily allowed his spirit to become embittered and poisoned. He trusted the Lord. Now, was it easy? No. But he trusted the Lord. And then he was able to look back over his life and say, God, I may have not understood that particular chess move. I didn't get it. But I trusted you. And actually, God used it for the saving of his family. And do you realize that from that family came the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ? Listen, my brain is a P, okay? My brain is finite. And I know for some of us, it's hard to understand what God is doing or what his will is. But don't lose hope. God will sustain you if you trust him. Some of you may have heard um, this, this poem, but I really like it. And if you've heard it before, that's fine. But I want to read to you because I like it, okay? So I'm going to read it to myself because I love reading it. And I need to read it to myself again. But I, I, want, I want you to understand that God at times, following God at times, it's not going to be easy, but he's promised to never leave us. And so this, this poem, I don't know who wrote it. They, they attribute it to many people, but we'll just say we don't know, which, but it's great. It's, it's the will of God will never take you. And so let me read it to you. It says, the will, of, the, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you, where the arms of God cannot support you, where the riches of God cannot supply your needs, where the power of God cannot endow you. The will of God will never take you where the spirit of God cannot work through you, where the wisdom of God cannot teach you, where the army of God cannot protect you, where the hand of God cannot mold you. The will of God will never take you where the love of God cannot enfold you, where the mercies of God cannot sustain you, where the peace of God cannot calm your fears, where the authority of God cannot overrule for you. The will of God will never take you where the comfort of God cannot dry your tears, where the word of God cannot feed you, where the miracle of the miracles of God cannot be done for you, where the omnipresence of God cannot find you. I want you to realize that when 
we're walking in God's will, we may not understand everything that's going on. But when you place your trust in Christ, he will see you through. And he says to trust me. And that's why I love the way James ends his thought here. And the way James ends his thought is just incredible because he ends his thought by, by, by saying, listen, you know, don't give up. Don't, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Look at, look at the prophets. Look at Job. Um, I didn't leave them. Don't give up. Trust me. But I love the way James ends with a promise. He says, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. He ends with a promise here. He says, look at what Job went through. Look at how the prophets endured. But the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. See, here's what I want you to see. In the times of waiting, it's in, it's, it's in those times. It's in the times of waiting that God's promises become more than just words on a page. They actually become your very life. You will, you will never be able to completely lean on the promises of God until you go through a time of waiting. That's where you're going to press in. That's where you're going to say, God, I don't understand this chess move, but I'm going to press into your promise. My, my vision is not going to be to the left or the right or what other people are doing. My vision is you, Jesus. Rock solid, firm foundation. You said, I want to give you peace. In this world, it's going to be tribulation, John 16, 33, right? But, but, but take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. So my trust is going to be in you. And it's in those times that, that we can find God's peace and assurance as we traverse through that time of waiting. So when you feel lonely, God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Just remind yourself, lean into that promise. When you feel lonely, God says, listen, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. When you feel separated, we know what God's promise is, that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When, when I feel lonely and when I feel separated from other people, I'm, not, I'm never separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so that's the hope that we have as we wait. And that's where God begins to do the deep work in your life. And it's amazing when you traverse through something and then you look back. Isn't it wonderful to see the faithfulness of God through those things and how he brought you through? You didn't see him then. You might see him now. And you look back and you say, thank you, Lord, for taking me through that. Because I've learned so much more than if I didn't go through that. God is faithful. He's not going to leave you alone. There is, I want to play this song for you. And then we're going to close in song today. But there's a song by 10th Avenue North. It's called, I Have This Hope. You may have heard it on the radio. I cannot listen to this song enough. I absolutely love it. And I want to play it for you today. The words to the song are going to be up there. And I just want you to sit and reflect on the hope that we have in Christ Jesus today. So go ahead and look up at the screens at the song. That song messes me up. Because at the end of the day, Christ is our only hope. And, And my prayer for you is, do you have that hope today? Have you put your hope in Christ 
if you put your hope in a world that, that's like waves in the ocean that just tosses to and fro, Jesus says, put your hope in me. Some of you are, are faced with some really difficult circumstances. And I want to encourage you, put your hope in Christ. He's overcome. I don't want you just to know it here. I want you to know it here. And I want you to reach out to Christ and allow him to speak to your heart today. So I want to pray for you. And we're going to close with the song we sing. It's called He's in the Waiting. It's just a great song about this very thing. And I want us to leave with that hope today that only Jesus Christ can give us. Would you just bow your heads with me for just a moment? How many of you just say, Pastor, just pray for me today. I need that hope in my heart. I'm going through something and I just need that hope today. Would you just include me in your prayer? Just raise your hand and I just want to pray for you today. Praise God. Amen. Amen. He's going to be with you. He's not going to leave you. Father God, we just put our hope in you today. And I pray for those that are just either putting their hope in you, Jesus, for their salvation, saying, Jesus, I need you today. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are the Savior. I can't put my trust in the things in this world because they've left me high and dry. And so I put my hope in you, Jesus, and I pray for those that are putting their hope in you today, Jesus. I pray for those who are just faced with some difficult circumstances in their life, and it's, it's just wearing them, just has caused them just to feel worn out. It's caused them to complain. It's caused them to become embittered. I pray that they would put their hope in you, Jesus, that you're doing the deep work. You, they may not understand the move you have made, But Lord, we're going to put our trust in you because you see the third, the fourth, and the fifth move that we may not see. Help us to put our hope and our trust in you in this and give us your peace as we trust you and help us to lean on your promises like it's our very life. And so we thank you that you will see us through and that you're a faithful God. We love you, Jesus. And we just ask these things in your wonderful name, in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.